helping the acquisition workforce maintain a decisive edge. This is the Defense Acquisition University Podcast. This is Anthony Rotolo for DAU Podcast. We're continuing our series about the Joint Acquisition Task Force for Coronavirus. Today, I'm visited by two guests. I'm with Colonel Jay Shell, U.S. Army Chief of Staff for the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell. And I'm also here with Jared Valu, Program Manager and U.S. Navy civilian working out of the Washington Navy Yard. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks a lot, Anthony. Good to be here, Anthony. Thank you. Very pleased to have you. Thank you for coming on. This is a very interesting story, this Joint Acquisition Task Force. It's kind of a just a grand ad hoc emergency type of coalition where we brought together many kinds of people from different walks of life within the Defense Department. And that story behind the story is very interesting. Colonel Shell, give us a more detailed idea of what you were doing before you were called upon to help with this JADF effort. Thanks, Anthony. Before I came to the Secretary of Defense's office and the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, working for Mr. Fahey, I was an Army program manager for about a decade. I came out of the Eisenhower School and was assigned to a joint billet here in OSD. And I came in to manage the DOD's ground combat portfolio, both mainly the Marine Corps and the Army. Uh, moved around a couple jobs right before I joined the Joint Acquisition Task Force. I was doing cybersecurity for platforms and weapons and then writing cybersecurity policy, the expertly written 5000.cs that everybody knows and loves, uh, the cybersecurity policy. And then I got a call on uh, March 25th at 7.15 in the morning from uh, Ms. Cummings. And she said, we're in the middle of a public health emergency. If you want to try and save some lives. And I said, of course, ma'am. And that's how we started the time in the chat. That was a momentous phone call. Pretty amazing. And what a shift in your focus. And Jared, if you could fill us in on what type of duty you were assigned to prior to this assignment. Sure, Anthony. Uh, so I was working for the Navy doing program management uh, for combat systems fielded on the mine countermeasures, Avenger-class ships, doing a lot of operations and sustainment work uh, on those holes. Got the uh, call from our, our SES and my deputy program manager asking if I would volunteer to help out on the pandemic relief effort one day. Told them that I was 100% in and on board to help out as best I could. Uh, the next morning, I received a call from Ms. Cummings. She had me jump on a, a teleconference, and uh, that's where I heard I was going to be the mass product lead on the JADF. Outstanding. So Ms. Cummings had a phone and a list of people to recruit, it sounds like. Yes, sir. Colonel Shell, was there a specific skill, some particular application of your talents that Ms. Cummings was looking for that made you a natural for what you were assigned to? Anthony, I'd say absolutely not. I'd say the acquisition workforce is they're expertly trained and all of us are 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 well postured to react to a public health emergency like this. There's nothing special about me. I just happened to be in the in the right place at the right time. I was assigned to Miss Lord and Mr. Fahey's organization, and so that naturally made me available for this high priority mission. 
So I, I honestly believe that anybody could have stepped in and done the same exact job with the training that the acquisition workforce receives from the DOD to assist Health and Human Services and, and FEMA. Thank you. Thank you. I was wondering if there was some particular skill that, you know, would just you take that and bend it toward this effort. And Jared, in your case, same answer or was there some special type of skill that lent itself to what you were reassigned to? No, Anthony, I don't I don't believe so. Uh, I would echo Colonel Shell's comments. I think the acquisition workforce is trained and educated extremely well. Um Understanding supply chains, understanding the operations and sustainment phase of the life cycle for complex weapon systems and products is a big part of what we do day in and day out. Uh, and I think that those experiences and that knowledge base lent itself uh, extremely well to this JADF mission. And I think you know anybody coming out of the acquisition workforce has the knowledge and the tools at their disposal to be successful and to help combat the pandemic uh, the way we did on the JADF. That's outstanding. You know, we're all to some degree, we're specialists in what we do. And we're also generalists. It sounds like we are generally preparing people to apply the tools of acquisition to a special need like this. That just tends to underscore this call for volunteers. This really was a way to bring a loosely federated coalition together of all DOD acquisition professionals. So, that's a pretty interesting answer. It wasn't what I was expecting. I, I was wondering if there was something in particular that they wanted you for, but it it tells that part of the story of how they could bring in people to do this. Yeah, we won't charge overtime. <laughs> so with the JADF assignment, each of you became leads for specific products. Can you discuss what that meant? You first, Colonel Shell. Yeah, thanks, Anthony. So I believe I was the first product lead that the JADF picked, and the most urgent issue at the time, obviously on March 25th, was the nation's ventilator supply. And what we found out was uh, Health and Human Services had a strategic national stockpile, and they were in the process of trying to award multi-billion dollars worth of contracts. Uh, Simultaneously within the DOD, we knew that DLA had those contracts, had contracts with ventilator companies. And so uh, Ms. Cummings and Mr. Baum asked me to go into HHS and FEMA and figure out what they needed from a ventilator standpoint and how we could assist them in their acquisition. And so what they did is they tagged me to be the ventilator lead for the Joint Acquisition Task Force. And what that ended up doing is it postured a group of core DOD folks well to assist HHS in managing the entirety of those contracts, almost $3 billion for about 225,000 ventilators and managing that industrial base. 225,000 ventilators. And I'm imagining it got distributed across many vendors. Yeah, that's correct. So... What we found is when we went into health and human services is they just did not have the life cycle management skills and industrial base management skills that those within the DOD are trained in, treat as second nature. And so we assisted them in essentially ramping an entire civilian industry that made about 30,000 ventilators a year to make about 10x that, almost uh, 200,000 ventilators in about a 120-day period. 
Wow. So it's really you're asking them to make 40 times what they would in a year just based on that three-month period. The ramp was pretty and, – and it was it was global supply chains. It was managing the constraints. It was attacking uh, supply choke points at the third and fourth tier level. Things that we do when we know an industrial base, but we're doing it for a civilian sector that FDA and HHS have purview over. And so we had to learn the products, we had to pair with those experts, and then we had to help them manage that ramp and then propose investments where we could break through those bottlenecks. And so that's the that's the skill set we brought that the DOD teams brought to HHS. And uh, we helped them manage their own contracts so that we could deliver both to meet the national demand at the local level. We could refill the strategic national stockpile. Uh, which was depleted from a ventilator standpoint. And then we also enabled, we became, uh, you heard the president say, the ventilator factory for the world. And that's true. We exported tens of thousands of ventilator, both as grants and sales uh, from American-made companies overseas to about 60 different countries. Yes, it's really remarkable. As was touched on with Ms. Cummings in the first of this series of interviews, we had lost some manufacturing capability for various reasons, and the idea was to bring it back, and we want to keep it now, of course. But through this whole episode, have built up this industrial base. We've seen companies retool that were not in the ventilator business tool up to produce these ventilators on that mind-boggling scale that you just described. So what an incredible story. Anthony, I'll just say that's what we do in the DOD is we manage industrial bases. Uh, and that's the skill set that HHS had a gap. And that's what the DOD was perfectly postured through the JADF to assist them in managing that ramp so that their vendors that committed to refilling the strategic national stockpile and providing response to the local level so that they could meet those commitments. And, and they're just not accustomed to HHS and, and FEMA were not accustomed to managing those civilian industries nor should they because they react to market conditions. But because we keep our industrial base warm because of the national defense implications of having it go cold or offshore, and we were able to instantly export those lessons and skill sets to help them manage the supply chains during this pandemic. Yeah, that's just an incredible story by itself. Now, Jared, were you working the same product line or, or a different one? So I was actually working on a separate product line, Anthony. I was working on the, the mass product line, which included N95 respirators, surgical masks, elastomeric respirators, things of that nature. Similar type of work uh, that Colonel Shell was doing. Uh, as the product lead, I think we were really challenged with understanding the problem set for our product lines down through the supply chain level, working through the interagency with HHS, FEMA, CDC, all the other uh, partners in the civilian agencies and identifying potential solutions to those problems that we identified uh, in the supply chain or in the market. Uh, and then, you know, kind of the last piece of it was supplementing those civilian agencies uh, and helping them in the interagency coalition to implement and execute solutions through assisted acquisition efforts. And uh, we, we were able to do that very successfully across the board by, as Colonel Shell mentioned, identifying gap areas that perhaps were not being covered by one of those other interagency partners and filling in and supplementing their efforts in a supporting role to make sure that we were helping them, informing them you know, on decisions they were making with respect to the product line to try and grow the industrial base and onshore domestic capacity in support of the national security strategy now and in the future. Now, when you mention a gap area, what does that mean specifically? 
So there are various things that were being done when I came onto the JADF. You know, HHS and FEMA were working contracts for N95 respirators. One of the top things that was identified as a, a potential mitigation for the expected PPE shortfall was, uh, you know, sterilization technologies new and emerging that were coming out for N95 respirators, for masks, things of that nature. You're referring to the sterilization that would allow reuse of these respirators? Yes, Anthony. You hit the nail right on the head. And so what we were doing was evaluating these emerging technologies in the sterilization field that were coming out and making recommendations and executing assisted acquisition to these other agencies to either go out and procure these and field them across the country or to identify opportunities where we could invest and subsidize the expansion of production lines on some of these technologies that we thought would bear fruit and that could impact the pandemic relief efforts in a big way. And so that was something that I think the DOD acquisition workforce had a very specific skill set that we brought to the table in assessing, evaluating technical maturity of technologies, identifying strategies for procurement and fielding, uh, and then developing, you know, the potential operational and sustainment type of structure for these various technologies and, and new things that we we're fielding in a market that, quite frankly, had never really utilized these things like we were looking to do during the pandemic. Now, just as Colonel Shell described, there was just a, a magnitude, a, a multiplier effect of, of the scale on which you were producing equipment. Do you have any kind of numbers for us as it relates to masks? Like what was the per annum type of output we would normally do and what you were asked to produce in that period of time? Yeah, Tony, if I remember correctly, I believe when we came onto the JADF, the domestic production capacity of N95 respirators was right around 15 million annually through various Defense Production Act investments and industrial base expansion subsidies. We were able to grow the projected national production capacity to meet the entire demand signal of about 170 million respirators by December of 2020. That's incredible. And then, like you said, you're leveraging the use of those respirators with the sterilization technology. Yes, absolutely. Uh, reuse and realization practices and technologies were a, a big part of trying to draw down the gap in the first 90 days of the pandemic and, uh, and, and try to mitigate the PPE shortfall that was you know, wreaking havoc with our country in the early days of the, of the outbreak. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable because just in addition just to the raw numbers of, hey, let's make you know, whatever, you know, this idea of making widgets, but doing them in such a concentrated amount, short time, there's also this innovation factor going on, which is another incredible part of the story with, again, the sterilization. Now, I know this couldn't have been easy. This was a very fluid, dynamic situation. You were probably having problems crop up that you couldn't have even foreseen. What kind of challenges did present themselves? Thanks, Anthony. So one of the biggest challenges we had operationally in the mass supply chain was for specialized test equipment that was mainly produced by foreign manufacturers. Uh, there was a huge global demand for this test equipment. And it became a critical piece of machinery that we needed to bring to the United States industrial base in order to expand our capacity and support our national security strategy. Uh, so what we had to do was ensure that this was a prioritized piece of proposals when vendors and industry partners were bringing Defense Production Act and industrial base expansion uh, opportunities to us 
uh, so that it wasn't forgotten and that we didn't have a bottleneck created from these proposals that we're investing in. Now, in addition to all the operational type of challenge, personally, as you're making things up as you went along, uh, what type of personal challenges did you face? Yeah, Anthony. Um, so I think the entire JADF team uh, was working extremely long hours, um, very dedicated group of individuals who uh, knew exactly what we were doing and how important it was to the country. Uh, so people were working weekends, people working late nights. Um, we had late night phone calls with the industry, um, with the interagency partners. Um, so put a, a stress on the personal life. Um, and then, you know, the the remote work was initially a challenge area. Um, however, it, it really grew into something that was extremely efficient and effective. We were able to do a lot uh, working digitally and working remotely. Um, you know, we work with a lot of people across the country, across the world um, in DOD. Uh, so it's it's something that we're familiar with and doing it in this instance uh, actually worked to our benefit. And I think we're able to do things quickly and efficiently through the JADF effort. Yes, I've been hearing a lot about how remote became, I think, something to adapt to. At first, it was a challenge, and then somehow you adapt to it. And I think it amounted to speed, just that immediacy of being able to meet, have meetings where geography wasn't an issue, and you could keep things rolling along and get into a rhythm with people. That theme has been coming up over and over, and it's one of the great stories coming out of this coronavirus episode, kind of universally. Now, Colonel Shell, same question to you. What kind of challenges were you experiencing? First challenges that we saw when we started managing the ventilator industrial base were that we were trying to delve deeply into a civilian industry that's driven by profit. And all the contracts that the government let were straight commercial contracts for delivery. And so what we had to do is uh, we really had to create those bonds with industry, create an air of trust and show that we had value both as a government team helping the ventilator companies, as well as our HHS partners. And we were lucky enough in that the DOD really just supplemented manpower, that the true experts in the industry from the government side were in HHS, and they were able to supply us with some truly exceptional folks that really knew the products and knew the industry. But they were just so overwhelmed with a global and national simultaneous response that we were just there to assist them from a manpower standpoint. And we overcame some of those natural kind of culture differences, both with civilian industry and with our interagency partners, just by being there, being present and letting them know that we were there to help. You were the reserve capacity that they didn't have. And in a conversation I had had with Stacey Cummings, she spoke about how there was kind of a, a delicate aspect of helping them to fulfill the mission while in no way trying to eclipse or, or overstep. Did you find any type of a challenge there or was it just a very easy partnership? Well, they were so stretched thin. I mean, simultaneously from manning hospitals with their public health service to letting these contracts. I mean, if you think about normal government employees, they're overworked and overwhelmed on a day-to-day -day basis outside of a public health emergency. And then you take a small organization like HHS and you throw a global pandemic on them. They just don't have the capacity from a manpower standpoint to react. And 
Uh, and that's what we did is we helped them react. They had all the expertise. They had all the authorities and, and we, they just offloaded work to us so that we could assist them in their normal daily activities. We by no means usurped any of their authorities. Uh, they were so busy. Uh, I was actually in HHS headquarters for a little while and uh, their leadership was so busy when we needed investments or we had to actually uh, walk into their office sometimes to garner decisions just because uh, they were they were really, really working hard in the oh, national wow. level response. And so that we just helped them offload some work and we were there to assist from a reserve capacity standpoint. It sounds like just a very constructive partnership. So what would you say was integral to your success? In other words, what or who did you rely upon the most, Colonel Shell? Thanks, Anthony. So both Jared and I, we're just the, the leads at the top of a large organization that happened to synthesize information and kind of hold the rudder. But there were lots of folks that were actually on the oars in the belly of the ship and and the the JADF, the DOD, HHS and FEMA, they they paired under us and for us true professionals that were volunteers that moved to the sound of the guns during this public health emergency. And so for example, managing the ventilator space, there were probably seventy or eighty folks. And I just happened to be the first man that established the team. And and it's really those folks from cybersecurity experts that end up sifting through all the bills of lading for shipments to people that day and night cold called vendors to see how they could assist with their constraints. I mean, that's really the team that broke loose a lot of the problems. And it's it's those experts that really were integral to the collective success, both within HHS and within the DOD. Within the HHS, there were two certified nurses that told us how ventilator works, what the strategic national stockpile would want to stock long-term. And so uh, those super hardworking folks that risk their health, that risk their familial relationships working day and night for dozens and dozens and dozens of days without a day off, those are the folks that are truly integral to the response. I think in short, it was a team effort is what I'm hearing. Undoubtedly. And, and there are true professionals, true patriots that responded, that volunteered, that would drive to D.C. from Maryland every day to brief leaders on what they discovered the next day or where the next supply chain constraint would be or how we could deliver more quickly. Those are the true patriots, both within HHS and the DOD, that, that were key. When the going gets tough, I'm sure that's what keeps you going is that deep sense of service to a nation, the patriotism you describe, and all that was at stake. And what we did is, uh, I mean, we not only responded within the first 120 days, but hopefully through a whole of government response, we will have ensured that these medical device and medical supply industries are onshored, they are ready, and they are prepared to respond to the next pandemic also. And so that's not something DOD or HHS can do alone. It's that whole of government response that enables the resilience of a nation that will ensure that we're ready next time something like this happens. Right. There's a sense of let's not get caught short in the future. And the work that you've done has laid down that infrastructure and made for readiness. So in the big picture, what did the JADF accomplish? I'll let either of you take that question. Yeah, Anthony, uh, I think the JADF was able to improve our country's national security posture. 
reduce our reliance on foreign vendors and foreign supply chains for critical PPE items associated with pandemic relief. We were able to bring that production capacity onshore and stand up that industry that, quite frankly, hasn't been here, at least from the mass product line in decades, and make that a, a staple of the American economy moving forward and something that we need to protect and maintain to ensure our, our safety for future pandemics or biological warfare. You know, we've heard the word unprecedented a lot. Well, now it's precedented and we have to be on a footing where we're prepared and I think that is the outcome, that preparedness and having the industry to maintain preparedness. Let me ask you both, what are you most proud of, Colonel Shell? I think I'm most proud of the team that worked day and night, both within HHS and the DOD. And, and why am I proud of them? Because not because they worked hard, not because they volunteered and put themselves around. I'm proud because they managed with their industry partners and they came together from all walks of life within DOD, all services, all branches, all grades, to ensure that the nation's needs were met in the short term. Nobody went without. We have uh, 210,000 Americans that have lost their life from COVID, but nobody's counting the number of deaths that we've prevented. And I think that that speaks testament. And, and it's sad that we've lost that many, but it, the collective response has prevented that number from going much higher. It's true. You know, it's the part that we can't calculate. We can only speculate or project what amount of life might have been lost. And we have to just be thankful that we limited it to the number that were lost. And through providing such an, this overwhelming response and supply of the ventilators, the respirators, the PPE, that we were able to intervene in this way. I think we saw many, many lives saved. Right. And, and uh, Anthony, we, we likened it to the arsenal of democracy. I mean, you had industries that did not make medical equipment that converted their lines in response to this public health emergency. You had auto manufacturers with, with shuttered parts plants that converted them into ventilator factories. You have textile companies that went from making runway clothes for models and for fashion designers in New York City, now making surgical gowns. I mean, this is a true national level response that is unlike anything that we've had since possibly World War II. It is remarkable when you say World War II, the retooling of companies whose output was something other than personal protective equipment or ventilators, as you mentioned, the, the car companies and other textile manufacturers, it is really wondrous to behold in, in such a short, again, a concentrated amount of time. Right. It is pretty, not only have individuals taken personal responsibility, but corporations have taken it upon themselves to help the public respond. And that's admirable. Just, it makes me proud to be, live in the country that we live in. It makes me honored and humbled to have the resources that we have. The national response, headed by a, a very few acquisition professionals, both within HHS and FEMA and augmented by the DOD. I mean, we're just the very tip of the spear for those large industry efforts that have truly prevented significant loss of life, that have precluded our country from making the tough decisions that they've had to make in other nations. I mean, it's, it's a pretty amazing response, of which I'm very proud. Indeed. And Jared Valu, what are you most proud of? Yes, Anthony, I'm most proud of the joint service uh, level of support that we saw on the JADF. 
you know, the first 72 hours, we had a laundry list of names of volunteers from the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, DLA, the Marine Corps, folks who were ready and willing to support the JADF mission, even though we were still trying to define exactly what that mission was. Uh, and those people on the on the various product teams really came together and did an outstanding and fantastic job and you know made our jobs as the as the product leads a whole heck of a lot easier. You know, so a lot of uh, credit goes to them in the joint service environment. You know, additionally, I would say uh, I never I never heard the words I can't, I won't. Um, you know, I, I never received a negative response when looking for support and help from the the joint service. Everybody was extremely willing to work with us, to cooperate, to support in any capacity they they possibly could. And so, you know, it's that level of support and service from the DOD that I think really enabled us to support HHS, FEMA, CDC, and the interagency coalition with this assisted acquisition mission. Uh, and you can see the the fruit it bore and, uh, and how successful it really was all across the board for the, the whole of the interagency. Truly. Yeah, a we-can-do-it attitude, which, again, harkens back to a famous World War II poster. So as we come away from this, and, and hopefully we foresee a day where this is behind us and whatever the new normal, it's kind of an overused phrase, but whatever that new normal becomes, what takeaways do you hope to see from this? What lessons, what takeaways for yourself, for the DOD, for the interagency? Colonel Shell. And then I think the biggest takeaway is we need to keep a resident capability within the DOD, and that's to provide the interagency response. That's what the Defense Assisted Acquisition Cell is doing. It's the long-term interagency support, at least the front end to that, to provide a acquisition response from the DOD to any type of future need. I think what what is critical about the pandemic specifically is that we need to treat some industries, whether it be fuel, whether it be medical devices, whether it be anything else that's critical national security, like we do the defense industry and maintain a, a semblance of a capability through a whole of government response that we can surge in, in whatever case or time we would need it. What I also learned was the expert acquisition ears that are within the DOD. I mean, you're talking about folks that, like Jared, managed countermine capabilities within a Navy ship, a singular Navy ship, and he learned everything there was to learn about N95 masks. You're talking about uh, we had a DCMA person on our ventilator team that all she did was write Air Force contracts, and she learned everything there was about ventilator consumables or an Air Force acquisition guy who procured bombs and bullets. And he learned everything about the ventilator supply chain and actually illuminated that whole civilian industry. And so these are folks that took the basic skills, the blocking and tackling of industrial-based management and supply chain illumination and could apply their DOD lessons learned to anything in any industry. And I think that that was pretty remarkable. I learned that when push came to shove, that the DOD team moved to the sound of the guns, helped out an interagency partner in their time of need. And then the skills and lessons that they learned were applicable to any situation that they could throw at us. It was this collective pivot that you were able to make. You had all the tools, you had the knowledge, and we saw it applied in record time here. And Jared, yourself, takeaways that you've been thinking of? 
Yeah, Anthony, I think you know, one of the biggest takeaways that I had coming out of the, the JADF task force was the the need and the, the requirement to stand up an organization that's going to be able to put some structure behind these types of, of future interagency efforts as they come up you know, in our, in our country's future. I think there was a lot of evolving mission. I think there's a, a lot of figuring out, you know, who was responsible for what in the interagency in the early days. I think the defense assisted acquisition cell is a great step in making sure that that organizational structure is built ahead of time so that when something like this happens, you know, in the future, you know, God forbid it, the country and the interagency is going to be ready to react quickly, efficiently and with a purpose. Jared, I love those remarks. And, you know, I hear a dog barking in the background, and it's just a reminder that all this work is being done in a domestic context for national security, but we're all in this crazy coronavirus thing. But the work goes on, and the creativity that was exhibited, and the way you marshaled yourselves and larger forces to get it done is truly a wonderful story. My guests today have been Colonel Shell. Jared Valu, Gentlemen, thank you for being with me today. Anthony, a pleasure. Thanks for hosting us. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was fantastic. Thank you for listening. For more resources, visit the Defense Acquisition University online at dau.edu.